Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Now a nurse practitioner, Donna Vandenbosch, was ritually abused by Father Joseph Maskell. Maskell also left Donna with a hypnotic suggestion that if she ever told anyone about her experience, she would have to commit suicide. This is Donna's story. Gemma, I want to first ask you a question. How did you first get in contact with Donna? Did you know her before the whole Sister Kathy episode? I did not. That's a great question, too, because Donna and I have been round and round, haven't we, Donna? Oh, my God. I was in contact with Donna's cousin, Debbie Hannon, before I met Donna. And Debbie would talk on the Archbishop T.O. Survivors page about how her cousin knew some things about Joseph Maskell and about some things that happened at Keogh, but was not able to talk about it. And Debbie offered to communicate with Donna and to see if Donna could start to talk about it, which was very interesting to me. And so Donna at first was a little resistant. And then Debbie would get her just answer yes and no questions about what happened. And when I finally began to communicate online with Donna, I came to find out that she told me when she was abused by Joseph Maskell that he gave her a post-hypnotic suggestion that if she ever talked about it, she would actually have to commit suicide, which is a horrible thing to do to a young teenager. But that has been an obstacle for Donna. And Donna is going to tell you more about her own history, but I have been communicating with Donna for probably four years online and by phone. And so that's how we came to know each other. Perfect. Donna, I had no idea about that hypnotic thing, and I'd love for you to go into more details into that in just a bit. Okay. But first, I want to ask you, can you start talking to me about when you first started attending Keo 
and when the um, abuse started I'll, for I'll you. I'll go back. I used to start when I was a student at St. Clement's. Father Maskell came to my school at St. Clement's when I was like in seventh grade. And that's when I noticed the whole parish and church started changing. And it, and this was in 1968. So I really had known him before I went to Kia. We, all the young girls all knew that he was up to evil. Because one day I'm walking home with my girlfriend. And they said, school is having parties in back of the rectory. And, and the boys are all going over there to drink. And I said, I don't believe it. And I said, prove it. And they showed me a snapshot. And I just saw it for a couple minutes. And it was a snapshot in back of the rectory. And the boys, and there were some girls there, and there was one nun in the picture. And they were playing volleyball in back. Uh, and the nun had on regular clothes. And she did have a habit of her head, a short veil, which was a big change back then. And it was shocking to see, like, it was out of the ordinary to see a sister in regular clothes. Then they took the picture away from me, and we kept on walking home. And we would walk through Lansdowne, which has wooded areas, and I would walk to my grandmother's house after school. It was really the first time that I had any connection with them. And then I was a cool seventh grader and went to my first dance with one of my girlfriends and I dressed all up and got my first pair of high heels and wore to the dance and my parents came to pick me up after the dance and Maskell came in a police car jumped out of the police car while all these kids are crossing the street and he almost hit everybody and my my father jumped out of the car and is yelling who's that and I heard one of my cousins who went to the school say, run, Donna, run, when they saw Maskell. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And he had jumped out of that police car with the black cape on. And he had on this big crucifix that had gems in it that his mother had given him. He looked like Barnabas Collins from Dark Shadows. And he was just so odd and weird. Everything was weird about him. And that was like my first big encounter with him. Then his mother came to school and started changing my school routine. Like we had to go to Stations of the Cross because she wanted. And I would sit there as a resentful that my mother couldn't make decisions like his mother. And I'm thinking, you know, what adult is bringing his mom to school like this when I can't bring my mom? Like, it was all just so strange. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another day, he showed up in a religion class and taught religion class to him. And this boy started screaming at him about a jock strap up on his bed. And I was so horrified at hearing that in seventh grade. I was so embarrassed. I just 
made my head on my desk. I know I was beat red. And the boy was yelling, and he was yelling over the boy. We couldn't hear. The boy ran in the cloakroom in the back. And thank God the bell rang then, and we all ran out of the classroom. Like, strange things were happening at St. Clement. And then, then I made it out of eighth grade, and I got accepted into Keogh. And I started missing my St. Clement friends. So I went to a fall picnic that was sponsored by the CYO of St. Clement. And that's where I was first raped by Maskell and Magnus, my like second week into Kiel. They had dr- Maskell had drugged me. A cup of soda was given to me. And I, 15 minutes of driving, driving to Avalon State Park, I was like, my cousin thought I was drinking with a boy. And that was just not true. I had drank a Coke and I was stumbling all over. And this boy had led me down a dirt path road to where a police car was. And Maskell got out of the car. And um, then it was Magnus that got out of the car and started hugging me and pulling my pants down. I was becoming really woozy. And Magnus right there with Maskell standing over watching. And, and it was daylight when that started. And when I woke up, it was nighttime pitch blackout and they were loading the bus and Maskell had the boy walk me back to the bus and I could see Maskell talking to the mothers that were in charge of the picnic and I knew he was talking about me and the bus driver was just shaking his head at me and I wasn't even realizing what I looked like and my cousin told me I got on the bus with leaves and dirt in my hair and puke all down the front of me. Like, and I'm very lucky to be alive. And the parents picked me up from the St. Clement. And Maskell and Magnus did not ride back to St. Clement. They let the school bus take me. And my father got me. He took me home to my mom who bathed me. And then they both took me to the hospital. They ran IV fluids on me and all. And they kept on yelling at me, what drugs did you take? And I said, I didn't take any drugs. And they thought I might have been suicidal. And had a doctor come examine me. And I could have been put away for 30 days. And here I am just raped, all this happening, not understanding anything and fighting to go home to my bed, telling the doctor, I don't know what happened. Nobody ever examined to see if I was raped that night. No one guessed. Finally, the doctor said he didn't think I was suicidal, and he let my mother take me home in the morning. And so I, oh, it was so terrible. I remember being woozy for days, and my mother thought for sure I was 
taking drugs and would just start yelling at me, look at you, put these sunglasses on. I can't stand looking at your face like that. It was, I was so confused and bewildered. It was pathetic. It's one of those things where you're just speechless after hearing something like that. There's nothing. So sorry. So sorry. I hate upsetting people, but I like people to know the truth of what kids go through. Exactly. I think that a big message about what this podcast has been like for a long time, things may be uncomfortable to talk about or hear about, but it's important that we do talk about them. Yeah. I know that you said that you first was introduced to Masco in seventh grade. When you went, did, you did a 10 Kia, right? And yes, I went seventh and eighth grade was at St. Clement. And then ninth grade, I started at Kio. And I didn't even know Maskell was at Kio. And I had no idea who Magnus was. I just knew, knew a man with black pants and white shirt got out of the police car and raped me. I didn't know who he was. And I didn't find out till I saw his picture on the survivor's page. And I and then I knew immediately who he was because he had a real thin body and all. He was built different. I knew it was him who had raped me. Donna, can so, you talk about how once you got to Keogh and realized that Maskell was working there, how... Did he approach you at that point? After I returned back from Kiel, because I wasn't there for a week after being drugged, my mother had kept me home. Um, Masco called me into his office, and all this stuff was out of my mind. I had no, no memory of it. And I'm being called down the office. And I thought, oh, I wonder why he does. He wants to talk to me, and I have no feeling of warning that something's wrong. And he sits me down at his desk, and he said, "He said, draw me a picture of a tree." And I thought, great, because my stepdad was my hero, and he always he was an artist, and he used to teach me how to draw trees. I thought, oh, I'm going to pass this good this is really going to be good so I drew this tree and then he asked me how old is this tree and I said 14 years old he said what else do you want to say about the tree and I said it's a mature tree and he said you don't have a father's love and I thought oh my god he sees us all in this tree this is too much because my my um, biological father had abused me, and I thought it must be coming through this picture of this tree. And so he took his chair from behind the desk and put it next to the desk, and he said, come sit on my lap. And he said, I'm going to show you a father's love. This is all strange to me. And he had on that day black pants and a white shirt with collar unbuttoned, and I sit there, and he starts hugging me. I'm really uncomfortable, 
And then he starts unbuttoning my and he says, this is what a father's love feels like. And then he keeps on like mashing my head down his chest on at his waist. And then he has me give him a blow job. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey, as someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. This is unbelievable. Taking you so off guard that you have nothing to compare it to. And I didn't even have, I was such a naive kid, even after being abused, that I stayed away from such subjects that you buy me a textbook when I was a kid, I'm happy to read it. And that's why I'm a little analytical now. And the abuse took you so off guard that it brainwashed you really had nothing to compare and that's why he got away with what he did so easily donna do you feel like at that time at keo did you think that others were being abused like that i knew they were i didn't think they were i knew they were so when i'm 14 and being called to his office i am crying walking down the hall because I know bad things are going to come up. I don't even have vocabulary to give the bad words to describe the bad things. And stopping, I'm looking in the nurse's office, and they all heard my name called, and they tell me, keep walking down the hall. And next was my guidance counselor, and I walk into her office, and I said, Father Maskell's evil. That's all the vocabulary I had. And she said, get down there. And then next, I passed the office with the glass window. I can see the vice principal. I think her name is Nancy. The principal standing in the hall with her arms folded, just looking at me, like looking down at me. And I had to walk past her. Like, they all knew. 
they all knew and made me walk to that door, through that door, you know. So I was called down many days. My mother never let me miss school. And what was so surprising to me the past two years, I found an old report card that said I was late for homeroom like 140 days in one year. Are you kidding? Where did people think I was? I get off the school bus. And where did they think I was? Why wasn't anybody concerned and looking for it? Here I am in a private school that my parents paid for me to go to. The teachers and all had to know. Donna, when you say you were late for school, are you saying that you would go directly to his office when you got there? I, he would pull up. What I would do, my school bus would pull off, drop us off. He would meet me in the front, in that hallway, the front hallway, and pull mm-hmm. me and take me to his office. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Like mm-hmm. I would miss homeroom or I'd mm-hmm. miss a class, first class or something. And do you remember him using hypnosis? Oh, yes. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. He would give me a Coke when I would go in. And then he would, some days he would have me sit in front of him and he would get out a gold pocket watch and swing it and tell me to look at it, keep looking at it. Um, I don't know, my head must be spinning or swinging one day looking at it. And he'd start screaming at me, look at my eyes. And I never wanted to look at his eyes. In fact, he had a painting above his head where he would sit and I would always look at that painting because I could not look in his eyes because he was so evil and then that's one of his ways of hypnotizing me and another way was to make me lay on his sofa and he would turn out the lights and tell me relax your shoulders relax your arms and He would go down my whole body till I was, like, blacked out. And he he would have drugged me every, almost every day I walked in his office. You mentioned earlier about how he hypnotized you once, or Gemma mentioned this. Yeah, so he hypnotized me. And he gave me, in 93, I had a real breakdown. And 93, is there's court cases coming up. And I went, I left Maryland in 93 because I just felt so unsafe. And what I did was went to the Baltimore City Police and made a complaint about Father Maskell. Barbara Wallace, I believe her name is told me that I had to go file charges. And my mother, I my mother by then had known the whole Maskell story. And she told me, you have to go down and do this. I didn't want anything to do with it. And then she said, you have to help other people. And I agreed. And I went down and I talked about seeing a dead body. And having a gun held to my head and being told that I did it. They 
police that were taking my statement were part of a sex abuse home with two men, and they started laughing. Here's another crazy. And they go, when they heard dead body, they said, Holy, you have to talk to homicide. So they got a young black girl, and her name was Detective Tucker. And they said, and she was really young. They said, you have to take her statement. And they got a chair for both of us to sit next to their desk. And they sat there laughing the whole time. And I was shaking because here I am talking about a dead body and a gun. And aren't going to arrest me going in the back of my head. Am I going to walk out of here? Who's going to take care of my kids tonight? And I am in just tears, shaking and crying the whole time. I got this story out. And then I went back home, got my kids, drove up to Pennsylvania. I didn't, and then the detective, the detective started searching the missing persons report. And she wanted my phone number, and I wouldn't give any idea where I lived in PA or my phone number. And she would contact my mother over the years for about the next two years, every six months, and say what was going on. I really, truly believe this detective was up and up front. Later, I had a breakdown where I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't really take care of my kids. Like my kids used to sit on me with cereal bowls and my husband was working. I had I couldn't go to work, couldn't dress, and the kids would be jumping on me going, come on, mom, play, just play. And that's when they said, yeah, she's been through ritual abuse. and. They hypnotized her, and they gave her a post-hypnotic suggestion to kill herself if she told anybody. And then they explained to me that this would come in waves, and every time I spoke, that the wave would get smaller and smaller. So by the time I show up on the Geo page, there, I didn't talk since the 90s. I didn't know how this was going to affect my present day life. And I was really afraid to say anything but yes and no. And I would answer questions in that way. But Gemma and all the support I've had, I'm a lot stronger and can talk now. Donna, you talked about, and we've talked about this before, that you think you saw a dead body. Your yeah. Well, yes. Can you tell us what you remember about that? It was, I remember being at a dance at Cardinal Gibbons, and I remember it was about June, and I remember being drugging back of Kio, and I, I'm drugged up again. I'm drugging back of Kio, and I can, oh, what I want to tell you before that is I would see Maskell having somebody dig holes in the back of Kiel in the courtyard was one big one. And there was a tree there it was by. And he, by then he was giving me LSD 
during the day. And I would see my best friend, Elaine, and my other girlfriend, and I would yell, Mascularian bodies back there. And they would just start laughing. And I would stand there, stand and look at the mass window down. That was on the second floor, and I looked down and say, Maskell's digging holes, his burying bodies. And they would say, Donna, stop it, stop it. And I'm drawing attention to myself. And then up on the hill, on the opposite side, through the little bit of wood, I saw him digging up there for just like one or two days. But there was a big hole that he had had he was hiring somebody to dig and he would stand over the person to the person that was digging looked disheveled and all and and I used to say something is going going on here so that's what I can say about the Keogh courtyard and all and later my mom sent me a picture and in the picture was the back of Theo, and there was a cartoon handwritten, not hand typed thing that mm-hmm. would show different points of interest. And one was at the top of the hill, something was found. And then where I had said I would always remember used to be a tree there, and it's where the baseball, I think it's a baseball court in the mm-hmm. back now that mm-hmm. was not there when I was there. And it had that the FBI were searching these two places. Do you think, so, that, do I do you think, think there was a body when you were taken over there after the dance? I back to the day that I was filming with Jean. The first day I met Jean, Jean was talking about guilt. And I said, Jean, I know this guilt. I have lived with it for years. I, I know I couldn't kill anybody. I know myself. Just like I did for me to want to take my life is so unusual. It's not part of me. And I had terrible guilt that I might have killed somebody. I'm drugged. There's a gun. He's telling me he's going to help me. And I had to live with this guilt all these years and figure out, did I make some family sad? Did I do something? And through therapy, I through virtual abuse therapy, I learned that I didn't necessarily see it, that he could have drugged me, hypnotized me, and made me feel like I that mm-hmm. implanted in my mind. But certainly I remember seeing that article and that somebody else besides me has this. And mm-hmm. I feel that it was a true thing. But I no longer feel the guilt. When the abuse was going on, Donna, did you ever talk or tell anyone about it? Oh, my God, did I tell people. Okay, so I told Sister Mary Earl first. She was the guidance counselor. She's evil. I had a real strong relationship 
with my English teacher. And I didn't tell her I was being abused, but I told her that I'm having trouble. Her and I talked all the way up to when I was 50 years old. And then she, well, I think she put things together when she heard the keepers was coming out. And she Mm -hmm. did die right before it came out. Sister Judith, she was the dean then. And I know that she saw me in her office with Maxwell putting his arms around me. I know that for a fact. And I even approached her about two or three years ago and said, please tell me Maskell was threatening you. I'm kind. I try to give people a reason why they act this way. She now, she said, I didn't like him, but he never threatened me. And she said, that couldn't have happened to you. Lie. Big lie. And then one day I remember being in Spanish class and my name being called overhead. And I stood up and I started crying and I threw myself on the floor and I said, don't make me go. Don't make me go. And the English teacher, Spanish teacher had me go out in the hall with him. And he said, look, I know he's weird, but he's my boss. You have to go. And I just Mm. cried all the way down. So that was right there at T.O. And then I got myself kicked out of T.O., and I went to Andover High School, and I had told the guidance counselor there I had been abused by a priest, and he said he was sorry. And I tell you, it was so nice being in that school. They were all so kind. Then I went on a job. That school had me go to NSA and take a lie detector's test and psychological counseling. and the counselor, and when I went to the uh, psychiatrist, I said I had been abused by a priest, and he said, I'm really sorry to hear that. That was another person that knew. None of those adults reported this to the police with you or said, no, not one, not one. How did you get yourself kicked out of Tio? What did you do to get yourself kicked out? I tried really hard. I tried to do many things to get myself kicked out, and it never happened. Like, I'd smoke a cigarette, and they wouldn't pick me out. So one day, I smoked marijuana in the doorway. That caused, then I was taken to Sister Judith's office by Maskell. And they called my parents, and my parents came down, and my mother was outraged. And she said, if you say you didn't do this, they'll let you stay. And I said, Mom, you told me never to lie. And I wouldn't take the time. And I, that's how I got sick out. And Maskell had to leave the whole school before my parents came again. He was such a coward, I can't tell you. What grade were you in when Sister Kathy was murdered? I was, that was in 69, right? Yeah. It was her body found in 69. She disappeared in November of 69, and she was found in January of 70. So I would have 
my grandfather was taking us to church when I was like in eighth grade. And he would take my uncle and I. And my grandfather was very religious. He, I think I told you this, Jenna, before. He took me to a dumpster on Hollingsbury and Hollingsbury Road. And they found someone murdered a nun and they found her body here and her rosary was in her hand. And my grandfather sat there looking at the dumpster crying and saying, this is the greatest thing that could happen. And I'm looking over at an empty dumpster thinking, what is the old man talking about now? I see nothing. And I remember it being very cold. And because I'm sitting in the back of a big station wagon, and I remember them yelling at me, put my hat on, because I'll be quite irrespective as a little kid. But, yeah. And I know this was... And that's why when they were talking about a dumpster, we got the wrong one, because it was on the opposite side of Monumental Road. But I was... I don't know. My I have a theory about that. That, that I think that Sister Kathy was killed in her apartment and that um, Maskell got some dogs to clean up the mess. And if I was an 18-year-old boy or a young boy, I would have just dumped it off at the... I'm sorry to say it like that. I would have put her in a dumpster close just to get the job over with. And I think they might have moved her body to the finding place. Because I, knowing how my grandfather was so insistent, he went to the bar every night, waved and washed the boulevard. And I wonder if he didn't overhear that that night. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Wasn't. And maybe this is something that Gemma can touch on, but wasn't Sister Russell in the apartment that night? Yes. And we, everybody has different theories. And Don, I'm not judging anybody's theory, but it didn't appear that the apartment was a crime scene. What what did happen? Yeah. What did happen was when Kathy went out, Russell was in the apartment. And some friends who of Kathy's were visiting from another state. And I believe it was two priests, not connected to Maskell or anybody that we know about, who had stopped by to see her during the evening. And Russell told them that she was out shopping and they were sorry they missed her. They weren't, Russell didn't know them, so she didn't invite them in. And a lot of people have had trouble with that, thinking there were other priests that were involved in the apartment. Those were just friends from another state that were stopping by. And right. when Kathy didn't return, I it's my I don't think it's a big surprise that Russell called Jerry Koo, because I believe Russell knew the police were involved. So why would you call the police if you think the police right. are involved in kidnapping or abducting your best friend? So that doesn't surprise me at all. I never believed that Russell was part of anything evil or inappropriate. And this is, again, my opinion. 
She was my teacher. She was my algebra teacher. She was a wonderful person. She was like Kathy's alter ego. Kathy was the vivacious one and Ross was the sweet, gentle one. But they were both wonderful people. And I think when she called Jerry, that made sense to me because she was terrified. We know the night before, a Keogh student and her boyfriend came and that Maskell and Magnus walked in while the teenagers were there. And Russell was there that night. So I do believe she was threatened with her life. And so all her life, she had to make a decision. Do I tell what I know or do I protect myself and my family? And I think most of us would have made the same decision she made. Yeah. And that was to protect yeah. her family. I definitely agree. I don't think Sister Russell was involved evilly or anything. I do believe she was threatened. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And we do, we all, I think we all can agree that we know that where Sister Kathy was found, that wasn't where she was killed. Yes. I will agree with that. Do you agree with that, Gemma? I don't know. I go back and forth about that because now that I know that James Scannell was part of the abuse circle and he was working that day, I think perhaps he arranged for her to be found that day somehow. So I don't know. I wish I knew more about Rensick. To be able to say that she had been moved or not, but I don't. And the autopsy does not indicate that she was moved. So that's a big question mark. What do you think, Donna? Do you think she was moved? I definitely think she was moved. I definitely think she was. I think she was moved. Um, I The horrific things that were done, it's just terrible but i think that they and that's probably i think she was moved and that might have been one of the factors why it took so long to find her and i think whoever moved her knew it and that's why gene was taken i don't yeah because gene was taken there in november and i believe that once she was taken there I think Maskell had a change of, had a thought that she could possibly bring somebody back there and then he'd be had. And I think probably if she was moved, it was right after Jean saw her to prevent Mm. Jean from bringing someone back to that area, the police, a family member. Terrible. Going back to some of the things that you had been talking about, Donna. Yeah. I know that you mentioned how in seventh grade or around seventh grade, you remember seeing Matt school getting out of a police car. Yeah. What are your thoughts now about him having such a big involvement with the police? Do you think that's one of the reasons he wasn't Every, caught for so long? Well, this is just something my husband and daughter had to bring up to me a couple months ago. 
the end. Because I can't tell you how many times police cars were at Kia. And they said, they told me, Donna, that isn't normal. I said, what do you mean that isn't normal? And they said, when you went to Andover, how many times were police cars on the parking lot there? I said, maybe one time. (laughs) And it was like all the time, like the normal thing at Kia. It was unbelievable. Gemma, in The Keepers, you met Skinnell, correct? Yes, I did. Knowing what you know now about him, like, how do you feel about that? Do you wish that you could have asked more questions? I think everybody knows how I felt about him the minute they saw you turn away right. from the truck. I didn't believe anything you said. When he was being interviewed by our director and was asked, what do you think about all these women reporting abuse? He said he didn't believe any of it. And when Ryan White asked, why would they do that? Scannell says, because teenagers like attention. And Scannell was the one that, out of the blues, there were no maggots or anything. Nobody even asked him about that. But I didn't believe anything he said. I felt like it was important that we honor and respect that he gave us his time that day. And he died the following year, died in November of 2016. And we, since the Keepers came out, we've had at least one survivor make the connection between Skinnell and Edgar Davidson and alleges that she was raped by both of them in a mood theater. So... That pretty much says how I feel about him. Um, he had a double life. So, good now, So, I, my grandmother lived on Batapsico Avenue, and I would hang at my best friend's house, Elaine, who lived in Lakeland, and I was familiar with these people. I was familiar with the, and I had seen Edgar in Lakeland. I didn't know who Edgar was, but I had seen him at the office. He had raped me, too, at Maxwell's office. And I um, had, and plus, he drug me out of the back door. And I can remember, like, looking up at a blue sky, seeing Edgar with no shirt on, being raped and strangled. I take it as that at the park. And I don't know. I Like, you put me in a car and drive. I have, I'm just in hysteria. I have no sense of direction. I can't tell you where. These are all, and I had met victims from Lakeland that Gunnell had abused. And he abused kids in Lansdowne also that went to the public schools and all. So it wasn't just the girls from CEO or he's just dirty. The crazy thing about masculine, I know that Gemma and I have talked about this before, but it's sad when you look at the map of where the church sends him to work. 
he starts yeah. abusing boys. So then they move him to an uh, all-girls school, thinking, okay, we're going to get him away from the boys. And then that keeps happening. Donna, what were your impressions when you heard? Where were you and what do you remember about first being told that they were going to create a documentary about the abuse? Um, geez, it was so early on, and I hadn't gotten my footing yet of how my body was going to react when I hear. Am I going to be suicidal again? Am I going to start falling apart where I can't go to work? And here I am working full time, I mean, full, full time during the film. I was just so worried, and that's why I would let people help me talk and I would answer yes and no questions till I got stronger. In fact, I'm probably my strongest now because I've been going to therapy for two years. What was your expectations during the filming? What did you think was going to be the reaction? First of all, my, my part of the filming I just want to say I was so honored that Ryan would take time to listen to me, unlike everybody else would not. I could not believe that I was given such a tremendous opportunity. I thought people would just hate what I was saying. And I was taking a big leap out because I'm a professional. I had done a newspaper article with Laura Bessette, and then uh, I was called down to the office by the director and marketing where I work, and they told me I better never say where I work, and I if I become identified, it was still worth it because I wanted the world to know what Masco had done. I would do anything for that opportunity. Did your family and friends know that you were going to be a part of the film? Yes. And they were discouraging me. Can't, do we have to go through this again? And I said, yes. And because my poor family has been through it so much. And they said, okay. And they took me to Maryland for filming and all. They were still behind me. And now they understand because they've learned so much the past two years that, yes, she has to do this, and yes, it's not right what was done to all of us. Did your entire family watch the film with you when Netflix aired it? No, my husband and I could not. He, we could not watch it together because it's, pain, it's so painful to my husband he is truly a sweetheart, and I don't want to see him hurt. Has your husband been able to watch the series? He has watched it, but he has. We each have to go at our own pace. And it's even been now. My daughter is a lot braver, and she writes articles about what her opinion of everything is. And my husband actually called in this already station corrected somebody who was bashing somebody that had been raped and waited for years and my husband identified this he did this this past week and identified he the husband of someone in the keepers 
and that let me tell you why they wait for years. They were threatened within their with their lives. Their families were threatened. So I, he's coming right along, and he's so proud of himself. I think one of the good things that the Keepers series did was it opened up people being able to have that conversation and being able to yeah, speak about yeah. it. You have granddaughters talking to grandmothers. You have mothers talking to daughters. It's really a phenomenal thing. What is your life like now after The Keepers has been out for more than a year? People are still afraid to talk to me about it. And some people are sick of hearing of it. But in general, the girl, the people that I work with and all, I had someone come up and hug me today and say, Donna, the next time you go to Harrisburg, I want to be there with you. And I said, certainly. And it's a good reaction, but they don't like hearing about it every day. And they tell me things privately. They don't talk openly. And uh, I wanted to see us talk about open, where people are more comfortable. But this is a big start. Do you have any advice for anyone who may have been going through something similar that you have been, that you were forced to be put through since seventh grade? Please get some therapy. Please call, talk to it. And, oh, it's so hard to get therapy. The In the 90s, when they were giving therapy, they were actually harming people. And now therapy for ritual abuse and complex post-traumatic stress disease has come so far. There are ways of controlling your symptoms and getting relief. But not go to the church because they're going to use things against you. And I have such a poor opinion about the police. It is hard when I know people sat there and laughed at me. But I have to be a little open that it's a new generation. I have talked to Robin Teal, who has been very sweet and kind to me from the police department. and. It's a new age coming about. Donna, can you tell us about your, what happened in Harrisburg that you attended this week? Because I yeah. think it's important that everybody hears about your your activities since, yeah. since the Mark keepers Rod, was released. And Mark Rodney and went. He's a representative from Pennsylvania who had been abused by a priest. And him and Josh Shapiro and my friend Mary McHale was part of the, Mary McHale was part of Josh Shapiro's brand jury report. And this week, the house part passed. Now it goes on to the Senate. We're lifting the statute of limitation to the age of 50. And for an open window, meaning a retroactive back where people can, for two years, can put a civil suit in against the cover-up and the abuse. Because oh, when I was really sick in the 90s, I used to write Amnesty International every day. 
and tell them I have no civil rights in my own country. I had been to the church and told them that I knew that I needed to know where Maskell was to feel safe and to make sure my kids were safe. And they told me they didn't know him. And they came up to that. I agreed to meet them in Pennsylvania. And in fact, Keeler had went and sent me a check for $30,000 in the 90s just to go away. And he, they let Maskell go to Ireland. I couldn't do anything. And then he, sneaked, he comes back into the country. They still are hiding, and nobody could tell me. After I had guns, people put guns in my mouth. If you ever watch me eat food, I pick with my fingers. I cannot stand metal in my mouth. Like when I go to the dentist, I would go for dental care, sit in a chair, and the dental would, a dentist would put an instrument in my mouth, and I'd say, I have to leave now. And then finally they said, Donna, what's up? And I said, a priest abused me. And he put a gun in my mouth. So then the dentist started working with me and using the ice cubes to see like where the pain was and stuff. Like you have to tell people so you can get health care and all. One of the things I'm working on in therapy, I really don't feel pain like other people feel pain. And they think that's one of the post-hypnotic suggestions is that I wouldn't feel pain. And one day I was at work and my finger got bent all the way back and they sent me to the emergency room and they take a picture of both my hands and every bone has been broken in my hands. I don't remember anything traumatic and every bone, I have so many fractures in my feet that it's unbelievable yeah i think when we think about survivors the emotional and mental anguish is something that we focus on but as a nurse practitioner i know you've been especially aware of the physical health issues that yeah yeah can i had a part of the abuse i had an aneurysm go off in my brain and the typical sign you look for is a thunderclap, big headache. I didn't have that. Like, I, and I kept on insisting that they check my head. Like, because I could feel blood running in the inside of my skull. But I just didn't have the pain. Another time, like, I had a fever for a couple months. We couldn't figure it out. And it was my appendix had rupture. I didn't have any pain. Wow. And it's hard to connect with your body when you've been disconnected from it. I know that sounds weird, but every survivor knows what I mean. That's a great statement. Yeah. Yeah. And like, before I mentioned that I was strangled, and it's so embarrassing. Like, I went for a thyroid scan, and it's embarrassing because I know all these people. And all of a sudden, they came out and said, Donna, did you ever have an operation on your parathyroid? And I said, no. 
And they said, were you ever strangled? I said, oh, oh no, not me. Not me. Mm-hmm. Just want to live a regular life. Yeah. So that's something forensically. People that were severely strangled have that injury. Mm-hmm. And I know I didn't have an operation. Before we close up, Donna, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with us? Just how important this is an election year. Call your senators, see where they stand on these and open windows. And it's just not against the Catholic Church. I'm for no survivor left behind. This is important, too. I am really a caring person. And, like, I had run away, too, during this whole episode. Ran away. I had 35 cents in my pocket. And I, I hitchhiking to Ocean City, and I'm hungry. So I stop at a gas station, and I have I go in and get to get a thirty cent hot dog. And I'm sitting on the curb. I'm just starving and thinking, where am I going to sleep? And I don't know. The hot dog fell in the gutter, and a dog came back and grabbed it, and I felt. Oh, I felt so no. I didn't know whether grab the hot dog from the dog or what. And I just laid on the grass and started crying. And these teachers from Maine were working the carnival. And they stopped and asked me where I what was wrong. And I was just crying. And they took me back to the campground with them where a tent, they had tents and they gave me a tent. And they received me, and then I would go work with them on the boardwalk and get paid. And it, and then um, later, I made enough money where I could get my own hotel room. I split it with a girlfriend, and she worked for gypsies there. And at the end of the summer, the gypsies took her to Florida with them. And the mom told me, go take this test. And I did. And I won three nursing school books in tuition. And I'm going to tell anybody that's homeless, things can look. The kindness of strangers, as Gemma was a stranger to me, the kindness of strangers is overwhelming to me. I I feel like the world is my family, and I want to tell everyone, never give up. Life every minute is worth living. 